Now, you notice a group of young people just walked out, and it's not because I'm preaching today. Uh, some evil person scheduled Basics soccer team to play at 11.30. And uh, so it has nothing to do with who's in the pulpit. You know, it's interesting, in the traditional churches in August, the preacher goes on vacation, and guest speakers fill the pulpit in the month of August. Since uh, our preachers are always on vacation, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. This last week, I've actually probably for maybe the last two weeks, I've been living in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. These five chapters contain some of the most beautiful statements found anywhere in Scripture. These are very emotional chapters. Jesus was very emotional because he knew he was going back to the Father, but on that path was Calvary. He was emotional because he had had this wonderful three and a half years with the disciples, and his relationship with them would never be the same again. The disciples were emotional because Jesus kept saying things like, I'm going to die. Uh, they're going to kill me. I'll be raised again the third day. I, I'm going away. And they would say things, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. <laughs> uh, does this really have to be? And he would say things like, you should rejoice if you love me because I'm going to the Father. As with all emotional conversations, these five chapters do not follow any kind of consistent, uh, didactic, logical thought. But emotionally, they jump here, and they jump there, and here's a statement, and here's a question, and here's an answer that causes a, a springboard in another direction. Very emotional chapters. With the exception of John chapter 1, these five chapters reveal more about the person of Christ and his mission, again, than any other section of or any other body of Scripture that is found in the Word in a, in a given place. Before getting into the message this morning, let me begin by commenting on something that became so apparent to me as I lived in these chapters, and that's this. Jesus spent his final hours among friends. 
Jesus said to the eleven, and you know the quote in John chapter 15, No longer do I call you slaves. The slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now think about this. The very human Jesus, the human side of Christ, said to them, I call you friends. For over three years, they had spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week together, most of the time. Occasionally, they had been sent off on on missions. They had slept out in the field together. They had cooked their meals around the campfire together. They had slept together. They had eaten together. They had used the toilet together. They had faced good times and bad times together. And so the very human Jesus could say, you're my friends. And he said, I chose you. You remember the scene early on in Jesus' ministry in Galilee near a mountain. A group of people had gathered to hear him and he ascended a short distance up the mountain to a plateau. And there he called out of the crowd a group of men to come and stand on that plateau with him. And then he ascended the mountain and spent all night in prayer. And after that night in prayer, he came down from the mountain, and from those on that plateau, he called forth twelve to be those individuals that would spend more than three years with him, learning about the kingdom of God, learning who he was, being prepared to be the ones who would carry on the work of the kingdom by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit after he had ascended back to heaven. And so I could say, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Now it's interesting, a few verses later, the divine Jesus used master-slave terminology because that's really the relationship he had with him, but the very human side of Jesus could say, friends, we've been through it all together and I have told you everything. You know, as I thought about that and especially as they sat around the table in the upper room and you see the picture of the Last Supper and that's a horrible picture of really what they experienced that night because the way the meal was partaken of, the table was very low and there were couches around the table and you leaned upon a couch on your left arm with your feet out behind you and you ate with your left hand. And the person on this side would lean back and talk to you and you'd lean back and talk to this one and have conversations with the one across the table. It seems that when they entered the room, they were each trying to get the chief seat, which would have been the one right behind Jesus next to the... Jesus had the chief seat. That was number two. Number three was here. John got this one. So he leaned back on Jesus. Jesus leaned on the breast of Judas. And that conversation took place around the table in which Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And they all said, is it I, is it I? And Peter, who 
usually got this seat, didn't this time. Judas got it, and Peter motioned to John, ask him who. So John leaked back, who, Jesus? And Jesus said, the one with whom dips the morsel with me. And Jesus dipped the morsel and handed it to Judas and said, what you do, do quickly. And Judas went out. But in that intimate night, Jesus was with friends. I could not stop thinking about the beautiful gift of friendship. To me, there's no higher word that I can give to anyone than the word friend. I have no choice who is my brother. I have no choice who is my sister. But I do have a choice out of the brothers and sisters and even some who are not, who will be my friends. When I was in high school band, our band director was a Hungarian, a, a man who had come to the United States during World War I. He was a very intense patriot. And I was in high school during World War II, and he had stopped rehearsal, and he'd put down the baton, and he'd give us speeches. Often he cursed the Japanese. Uh, he, he was very much a, you know, a patriot. But uh, he would say things like, Now, fellas, never do anything mit der woman that you would not want done mit your sister nor your mother. And, of course, we'd take that in. And then he would say things like, Now, fellas, uh, remember that in life you can never have more friends than you can count on der von hand. Want that all. Trust no more. Well, I suppose that's true in the world, but I thank God for me that's not been true. <laughs> I know of no man in the world more blessed than I am. I have true friends everywhere. <laughs> and Jesus promised that. He said, he that forsakes father, mother, sister, brother, houses and land, and so on, you know, will receive many times what he has left behind. Can't we say that today? God has given us so many blessings beyond anything we have left behind for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends don't mean that we always agree. I have one friend who disagrees with me on the Trinity. And we don't argue and we don't debate, but we do dialogue. Uh, he's changing his views on some things. I haven't changed any of mine because I'm right. But he has, he has changed some of his. But he is a true friend. And so we dialogue. Just desperately praising that God will bring him to the truth, of course. And there are different levels of friendship. Psalm 1824 recognizes that. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, Psalm 1824 says, For a man to be friends, he must be friendly. There's great textual difference. As a matter of fact, if you're reading a version that is based on the Septuagint, verses 23 and 24 aren't even there. If you're reading one of the newer versions, you'll find that it says something like this, a man who has too many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So based on the text that the newer versions the last hundred years have used, 
we see there are two levels of friendship. The man who has too many friends comes to ruin. It's talking about a guy who's sort of a hail fellow well met. He's everybody's friend. He really isn't anybody. He's a chameleon that kind of reflects those with whom he is being friendly. But there are those individuals who have autonomy in themselves and they are really somebody. And that kind of an individual can have a true friend who sticks closer than a brother. A true friend can have a personality that drives you up a tree. But he can still be a true friend. You know, I think of Gordon. When he and I traveled overseas, there were times our life depended on one another. If either one of us would have made a mistake, we'd have been gone. To the day I die, we will have a friendship, even though at times we just disagree with each other like everything. But that has nothing to do with our friendship. Gordon is my friend and always will be. We're in it together. The gift of friendship. So beautifully pictured as Jesus had these last hours with the Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing that occurred to me, and all of this is introduction, (laughs) another thing that occurred to me was the state of the church and I mentioned this in elders meeting this past week if you take a block of wood and throw it in a pond it will float now if it's dense like Bodark it won't but most wood will and the less dense that wood is the higher It floats in the water. It's obvious. It can be seen. If you leave that wood in the water unattended, in time it becomes increasingly waterlogged, lower and lower in the water, till you can scarcely see it, if you can see it at all. It becomes more identified with the water. It has more water, perhaps, even than cellulose in the wood. To me, that's an illustration of what so often happens with the people of God. Jehovah recognized that when the Israelites entered the land of Canaan. You go into this land, it'll be occupied by people who are idol worshipers. They have very sensual worship. And if you live in the midst of them in time, Living in that age and in that culture, that's going to begin to seep into your lives. It'll seep into your nation. And even though you will still worship me, you will begin to reflect their thinking and even worship their gods, especially if you intermarry with them. And so God said, when you go into the land of Canaan, practice genocide. Completely get rid of all of the Canaanites, even their animals. Because I don't want you swimming in that pond. Of course, you know, they didn't do that. And they swam in that pond. And they compromised. And God had to do drastic things to cleanse his nation. 
Do you know that historically we'd have to say historically has happened with the church? The church exists in the world. The church exists in the culture and in the spirit of the age. And as we look back at the history of the church, we have to say sadly, the institutional church all too often has become waterlogged with the spirit of the culture and the age in which it is floating. The Roman Empire. Remember as we studied last uh, January and February, the history of the early church, there was one historian who said, in the time of Constantine, the Roman Empire was not brought into the church, but the church became a part of the Roman Empire. And Roman Catholicism today, which crystallized in that era, reflects some of the thinking and some of the hierarchy of that particular age and that particular culture. The Inquisition in which Roman Catholicism punished and killed dissidents is no different than what the Reformers did. They did the very same thing as they killed Anabaptists and individuals who disagreed with their theology. It was the spirit of the age. It caused both Reformers and Roman Catholics to do identically the same thing. One of the most moving biographies I've ever read is the biography of Michael Slatter, a Catholic priest who left Catholicism and ultimately became an Anabaptist. And the horrible things that the Reformed Church did to him prior to his death and then drowned his wife. The church began to reflect the age more than the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same thing is true. People have asked, how could Bible-reading, God-worshipping Christians ever have tolerated slavery in the United States? The culture and the spirit of the age, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, has blinded them. In Germany, after World War I, there was a tremendous depression, great suffering. But out of that came Adolf Hitler with his socialism, which began to reflect the thinking of the day and fascism, which resulted in World War II and the horrible anti-Semitism that produced the Holocaust. But here's the interesting thing. The established German church went along with Hitler. It was waterlogged with the spirit of the age and the culture in which it existed. You know... I see the same thing happening today. I could go on and on and give so many examples of how that's happened, but I won't. Well, one example, in post-World War II, the spirit of the age brought about the United Nations. It brought about the religious counterparts and National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches, which began to consider doctrinal truth a negative because it forced people to make a decision about what is truth. And most mainline denominations have bought into it. 
It's the spirit of the age. Today, the spirit of the age is seeping into the established church to the degree that many churches are reflecting the spirit of the age more than they are demonstrating the biblical kingdom. There have just been a plethora of books written trying to reinterpret Jesus in ways that fit the spirit of the age. Churches laboriously find ways to reinterpret Scripture in order to be politically correct. It's the spirit of the age. And sad to say, humanistic feelings, rather than absolute truth, determine both belief and behavior. Last Sunday, Bill Sullivan brought one of the most important sermons that has ever been presented in this room. Because today, and we have even heard it in our own circle, the statement has been made, it's not all about getting people saved. And Bill pointed out, that's the priority. If that is not the priority, if that is not the first thing on our list, then we send a bunch of well-fed, comfortably housed, warmly clothed, folks full of self-esteem, straight to hell. Getting people saved always must be the first priority. And then out of that relationship with Jesus, we abundantly go forth to give a cup of cold water to this person, to give food to this one and shelter to that one because the Holy Spirit has shed love abroad in our hearts and it is an expression of Him. One verse of Scripture that the spirit of the age is attacking with vehemence is John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And that verse is being attacked and people are trying to reinterpret because if it's understood in its literal and traditional meaning, it stands in stark contradiction to the spirit of the age in which we're presently living. So this morning, it'd be easy for me to stand up here and just say, now you remember Bill said... (laughs) And you remember Bill said, and you remember Bill said, because this morning, what I'm going to say is a supplement to Bill's sermon last week. If you weren't here, I urge you to get a tape or listen online to that excellent sermon and let it play over and over in your mind. Now, let me present a caveat. If you do not believe the Gospel of John was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the words therein are absolute truth, and it's a waste of your time to listen to anything else I have to say today. Uh, this is not going to be a talk to persuade you that Scripture is true and reliable. That would be another talk. This morning we make that assumption. As a matter of fact, we declare it. 
we want to answer three questions. What did Jesus mean when he said, I am the way? What did he mean when he said, I am the truth? What did he mean when he said, I am the life? I am the way. Well, to most of us, the meaning's obvious. But those who don't like the obvious meaning have to try to find some other meaning. The first thing that one might do would be to look for some kind of manuscript variance, like we pointed out exists in Proverbs 18, verses 23 and 24. Can we find any manuscript that has any kind of different wording? Well, I looked into that this past week. I went to Metzger's textual commentary on the New Testament, which contains lists of the variances of the manuscripts, even when the wording is the same, but a word might be misspelled. For instance, if we were to spell the word Savior, and you were a Brit, you'd spell it S-A-V-I-O-U-R. In America, it's I-O-R. So, even in Greek, you occasionally hit some different spellings or even slight different combination of words. But according to Metzger's commentary on the New Testament text, there was not listed one variant anywhere in any manuscript on John 14:6. So he sure couldn't turn that direction. So the next effort that has been made by these writers is to redefine the destination. For instance, if this morning I decided I would leave here and head to New York, I would travel one way. If I were going to San Francisco, God forbid, I'd be going another way. <laughs> and so it was important for Philip to say, I mean, Tom said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? What's the destination? of which Jesus speaks. Here's what one writer has written. I believe Jesus primarily came not to proclaim a way out of hell for some after death, but rather a way to a better life for all before death. His message was not about going to heaven after history, but about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth in history. And then this man goes through many pages arguing that since Jesus was compassionate and kind and accepting when he said, in my Father's house there are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. And when he said, I am the way, what he was talking about was bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And the Father's house is the kingdom of God on earth which will come about as we follow the teaching of Jesus and transform society. I scratch my head and ask, how could anyone, even after I read everything this man had written, how can anyone get that out of John 14, 6? I don't want to spend any more time on it, but a primary rule of interpretation is this. First, take the obvious meaning and reject it only if it stands in contradiction to obvious, overwhelming truth. 
what's the obvious meaning? Well, Jesus was going to a place that he called the Father's house. Exactly where that is isn't clear. How can our human minds wrap around that? But we do know this. It isn't here because he's going there. (laughs) He's going somewhere. And this house is big enough to accommodate everyone. Now the King James Version says, In my Father's house are many mansions. And so we write all kind of gospel songs about our mansion in glory. And mine has alabaster walls and all that kind of stuff. The word... In Greek, is monet. It means a place to rest. <laughs> Mansion, written in 1611, coming first from the Greek through the Latin to the English, really meant a dwelling place. But in our day, it means something opulent, but not in 1611. So Jesus didn't say, I'm going to prepare an opulent mansion for you. <laughs> in essence, he said, my father's house is real big and I'm going to set aside an apartment with your name on it in essence that's what he was saying but it's big enough for all of us isn't that a beautiful thing (laughs) but then he said I am the way now again in Greek there are ways that you can emphasize what you're saying and Jesus said ego ami it's as if he took his finger and pointed it at his vest and said I I am the way that's the emphasis in the Greek language. I am the way. And then he strengthened it by saying, No man comes to the Father but by me. And again, those who don't like that try to explain that away. They don't like any kind of uh, exclusivity. <laughs> and so Jesus surely can't be speaking anything exclusive. And they try to create some kind of a straw man representing you and me who do believe that Jesus is the only way. And so one man said, Jesus could not mean, I won't let anyone get to the Father unless they first get by me. (laughs) Jesus didn't mean that. (laughs) I don't, none of us believe that, do we? That he says, I'm guarding the door and the only way you're going to get to the Father is some way get by me. That's not what Jesus said. And, and, it, and so when you create a straw man saying that that's what you and I believe, it's a bunch of baloney. None of us believe it, and that's not what Jesus said. What Jesus was saying is this. Because of sin, all of humanity has been alienated from God. And from the time of the Garden of Eden, there has been a passion in the heart of all humanity, some way to get back to God, to connect with God. And that's what all religions have been about. But there was no way. Now there is a way. There is a way. You see, it's not bad news, (laughs) as some of these folks are trying to make it. I'm guarding the door. It's good news. For the first time in the history of humanity, there is a way. And that way is open to all who will take it. Hebrews 10.20 By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil 
That is His flesh. John 10, 7. Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I'm the door. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. The sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have attained our introduction by faith in his, into His grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.18 Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. And Peter emphasized the exclusivity of the way when he preached as recorded in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no under name under heaven that has been given among men. So we can create utopia on the earth? No. By which we must be saved. Paul emphasized it in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. What Jesus was saying is good news. Although there has never before been a path to heaven, now there is, and I'm it. Revelation 22:17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, Come. The invitation is taken to take this way. Again in passing, let me say the Greek word translated way is the word hodos. It, and it doesn't just mean manner, but it is the word that you use if you're describing a road or a path. Jesus is the highway to heaven. And he is the only highway that has that as its destination. What did Jesus mean when he said, I am the truth? Again, the exclusivity. I am the truth. What did he mean? Well, we have to ask again, what truth? Not the truth about how to fix a flat tire. Not the truth about the Pythagorean theorem, the square of the hypotenuse, equals the square of somebody by the two sides. Jesus never said that. Not the truth about the fact that uh, at sea level, water boils... 212 degrees, it's not about this, that, or the other, <laughs> but it is the truth. Notice that, the truth. The truth about God. The truth about Jesus' own identity. The truth about eternal heaven. John 14, 7, as that dialogue continued, Jesus said, if you had known me, you know, Philip said, show us the Father. Just show us the Father. That'll be enough. And Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and 
seen him. And Jesus said, have I been so long time with you, yet you haven't known me, Philip? Who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That's what I've been doing for three years, actually three and a half. John 1.1, 1, 1, and you've heard me say this from the pulpit before, but if you want to memorize three wonderful verses, these are three wonderful verses. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken unto us that his Son, who is apparent, appointed the heir of all things, through whom he made the world. And he is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of his nature. That word is the Greek word character, the, the very character of God. You know, we, uh, and that can mean either the character of who he is, but more than that, when you see this character, it represents something. Similar in, in uh, uh, we, we find in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ who is the image. And that's the Greek word, icon. Now you think about the icon on your computer screen, you punch that and that's a way to get somewhere. But this word really has more the concept that you see in the Greek Orthodox Church, which has icons. Icons are paintings of biblical figures that the people look at, and in that painting, therefore, they envision the person that that represents. Jesus is the icon, the very image of God the Father. The true character of God was displayed all three years of Jesus' ministry, three and a half years. You want to know what the Father's like? Jesus said, look at me. Listen to me. And it's interesting, the last verse of John 12, right before the five chapters I've spoken of, Jesus said, I say just what the Father is saying. <laughs> Isn't that something? Just exactly what the Father say. That's what I'm going to say, and nothing else. I think there's a great lesson there for any of you who today are teachers or preachers. We need to be careful to be exact that we are saying what God has said and not what we have said. <laughs> we should not be afraid to give an opinion, but let's clearly label it as that so our opinion will not be understood to be the Word of God. Jesus also spoke truth about entering the kingdom. Time is moving, but let me say, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, Wait a minute. You mean I have to go back to my mother's womb? <laughs> How can I do that? And Jesus said, Unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3.16, we know that beautiful passage so well. How do you enter heaven? He that believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The, the great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, so on and so on. You know the passage well. How to enter the kingdom of God. That truth Jesus presented. 
And then the truth about his identity. You remember one time Jesus said, If I be lifted up, then all men will be drawn unto me. And he's talking about the crucifixion. And the audience understood that. And they said, Wait a minute. The Messiah is not going to get crucified. So therefore, you must not be the Messiah. And then he had to say some things about his identity. John chapter 8, he talks to the Pharisees. And he said, you know, I've, I've told you who I am and I've told you these truths and, and, and you haven't heard them and you haven't believed. But he said, of course, the reason you haven't is because you're of the world. <laughs> but this is who I am. I am the truth. I spend time with all sorts of people. There's one young man I meet with once a week who is a mathematician. And the conversation is so delightful as we talk about this theory and that theory and different ideas. I spend time with auto mechanics. <laughs> and that's another realm of truth. Thank God I'm surrounded in my family and friends by musicians. And that's another realm of truth. I spend time with people who enjoy history and we talk about history and that's another realm of truth. If I were the perfect renaissance man and we're not jack of all trades and master of none, <laughs> but if I were the world's leading expert in a dozen disciplines, but I did not know the truth, if I were ignorant of the truth, it makes no difference how many other truths I know. It's garbage if I don't know the truth. What did Jesus mean when he said, I am the life? John 1, 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, what does that mean? If you read that in context, it seems to be saying that everything that is alive is alive because Christ gave life to it. If you read the New Living Translation, that's the way it understands it. God created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him, and the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Now that's more an interpretation rather than a translation, but contextually, it seems that's what that verse is saying. The, all animal life is a result of this wonderful creator. But there's more life than that, isn't there? Listen to these verses, John 3.15. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John 6.54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. John 10.28. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. John 17.2 is high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. 
John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Romans 5, 21, That as sin reigned in death, so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John, 1 John 2.25, This is a promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. John, 1 John 5.11, This is a testimony is this, God has given us eternal life, and this is life is in His Son. 1 John 5.20, We know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. And this is the true God and eternal life. So one thing Jesus meant was this. (laughs) When He said, I am the life, that He is the source of life everlasting for all who believe in Him and accept Him. You have it, I have it, and the reason we can have it is because of what we celebrated at that table this morning. Eternal life through Jesus Christ. But also, he showed us how to live, didn't he? <laughs> and that's that part about helping the poor, feeding the hungry, rescuing those who are sex slaves throughout the world, caring about our neighbor, and using what we have in our hands to bless the world. But you know, there's more than that. I heard on a James Robson program just by accident the other night, a man who had won the Mr. Universe contest seven times. Think of that. That was quite a man. Well, the first time he won the Mr. Universe contest, he said he had this trophy and he's in the motel room right after he'd won it. And he was looking at it and he said he just felt so empty. But all of these years that he had invested and now had finally achieved the goal, and he said, I felt absolutely empty. It did not mean to me what I always thought it would. Almost immediately after that, he came to Jesus Christ. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit came to dwell within him. After that, he won Mr. Universe six more times. But he said it sure was different. He said, I considered my body to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, and I was winning trophies for Jesus. (laughs) What a difference in the life before and the life after. Jesus is the giver of life through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. John 7, he, 38, he believes in me, as Scripture says, From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And a year and a half later he was, and we have the Holy Spirit. In closing, let me return to the statement of Jesus in John 14.1. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Throughout these five chapters, John 13 through 17, Jesus kept referring to the fact 
that he was going to the Father. But for him, the road that led to the Father was the way of the cross. And he was going to face such tremendous agony that a couple of hours later he was going to be kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane in such anguish that he sweat as it were great drops of blood, dreading what was ahead. Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus had to suffer the agony of Gethsemane and the horror of Calvary on his way back to the Father. That was his way back home. Now for you and for me, there's a cross, but it isn't ours, it's his. His cross. Indeed, we take up our cross daily, but none of us have to be nailed to a cross. None of us have to wear a crown of thorns. None of us have to be exposed naked in the horrible time of suffering as the crowd mocks us. Because Jesus went back to the Father and the road he traveled was Calvary for us. The way is open. (laughs) I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the path. I'm the only path. But I am a sure and a certain path. Travel and come home. Father God, we're thankful for your love and the love that caused Jesus, who thought it not robbery with God, to not clutch that role, but to give it up, to come to the earth, take on the flesh of a man, pay the price from our sins and now sits in glory awaiting each one of us as we travel that way. Thank you. In his name, amen.